Well, it was wonderful. Well, you're perhaps already there. I invite you to turn your Bible, if you have a copy of the Bible, to Matthew chapter 24. We have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew for some time now, several years actually, off and on. And we come this morning to one of the longest teachings of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, perhaps the second longest next to the Sermon on the Mount. And this whole section in chapter 24 and chapter 25 is Jesus teaching his disciples when he's on the Mount of Olives. He's left Jerusalem. He's left the confrontation face-to-face with the scribes and Pharisees. He's denounced them. He's pronounced woe upon them. He's now with his disciples, left Jerusalem, and as was his pattern with his disciples, gone across down the valley and up to the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And in this entire section, he is addressing what will take place in the future. He's teaching on eschatology and times. He wants his disciples, both those who were sitting before him, and we who are here this morning to understand some things and to be prepared. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to be slowing down in this portion of the Gospel of Matthew because it's, it's difficult for us. There's a lot of themes uh, that are perhaps unfamiliar to us. There's obviously a lot of uh, disagreement in the church at times over what these things mean. And we're not going to look into all the different positions and so forth. But it is challenging, and it is important, and I think it is timely. It's always timely, but particularly at the time we're living in right now. I, I think there should be a hunger for understanding of what God has said about uh, the last days and how we can live in light of the last days. And so I'm going to read chapter 24, and this morning I'm going to read through verse 14. I'm only going to read a small portion of the entire sermon of Christ, but we'll get enough of a taste. And I want to give you a heads up that this morning, by and large, my intention is to prepare you, to help you to study this portion of Scripture. You simply just can't launch into it. You, you, you can't just jump into what Jesus is saying without an understanding of, of Old Testament background, of what I am to think of these things. So my intent this morning pastorally, as I came to this sermon, is to help you as servants and believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, living in 2022 in New Hampshire, to understand how do I study portions of Scripture like this, these end times prophecies, and how do I live in light of them? So with that, let me begin in Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation, And will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. 
At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray and ask as we embark upon our study of the Olivet Discourse. We come, O God, to you this morning humbly, recognizing that godly men and women have been studying this portion of the Gospel of Matthew, the words of your Son, our Lord, for millennia now. And in humility, we recognize that, that often your son's words have been twisted or we have made them confusing or we have come to outlandish results prophesying when he would come and so forth. We pray as we approach that you would, by your own spirit, the one who moved in Matthew to record these words of our Lord, that you would put within us a heart and a mind to know, a heart of reverence, not merely of curiosity. And we pray for understanding. We pray that in our study of the scriptures that we would know what the Lord Jesus intended. And we pray most of all that we might know so that we would know you, know our Lord, and know how we, as Christ's people, can live in this place, in this time, in light of his teaching. We pray this for our peace, for our living in these tumultuous days, and most of all, for the glory and honor of our King, Lord Jesus. We pray, amen. The Olivet Discourse, as it's frequently known, is this message, this teaching that Christ gives to his disciples privately, we're told, in verse 3, as he is sitting on the Mount of Olives. It is a remarkable section. We've only read a small portion of the discourse this morning, and already we've been introduced to false Christs. We've been introduced to wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, persecution on a scale that is staggering, and we're only in 14 verses. It is a moving portion. It is a passionate portion of scripture, and it is frightening to us on its face. There is also a reality that, as I alluded to in my prayer, there has been throughout the centuries and the millennia of the church some disagreement on just what it is that the Lord means. Of course, there have been untold number of pastors, prophets, who have thought that because of Jesus' words, they could specify exactly what year, what date Jesus would be coming and And of course, those dates have come and gone, and obviously they were wrong. There is, among God-fearing, Christ-loving people, disagreement as to what Jesus means by these things. There are some who think that most of these things happened in that first generation. The most difficult verse in the whole section is towards the end, and when Jesus says that this generation will not pass away until these things, all these things take place. It's a remarkable section of scripture. It is humbling. We need to recognize that it's not necessarily easy, but it is the word of our Lord. It was given to us by the spirit of God 
It is for us to know, not for us just to pass over. And I am deeply concerned in our generation right now that there is very little interest overall in what God has to say about the future, about how these things will come to pass. The disciples were asking, when will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And it seems that today there are very few believers in Jesus Christ who are asking those questions. It may be in part because we are, we are disturbed by maybe previous generations in which we saw an abuse of all things prophecy. Uh, this week I have uh, a little book that I, I picked up uh, for free with some books that were uh, a library that was being um, closed and I picked up some of the books and, and this book happened to be on prophecy and in around 1979, 1980 at the time Russia was invading Afghanistan and in this little book this this prophecy writer was telling Christians that that because Russia was invading Afghanistan that that surely was the indication that the Lord Jesus was coming at any time. And, of course, we know that Russia went into Afghanistan, um, had a rough time, left, and then we went. And uh, our soldiers have been there. It's just an example of the kind of speculation that can take place. And, and I knew some of this uh, growing up as a boy and as some of the prophecy conferences there were and and, and there was, I think, sometimes, sadly, on the behalf of some prophecy speakers, in order to maintain their listening, they would keep their listeners going with bringing in tidbits of latest stories, happenings around the world. And, and people would sit with rapt attention, thinking that, wow, this man knows how to take current events and how to match them with the Bible and and maybe he has an inside track that surely it's going to happen within the next decade. And maybe that's why there's little interest in prophecy in our day. Because sadly, there were, I fear, a bunch of hucksters who were just keeping up their listening on the prophecy circuit. It's hard for us to believe, but 30, 40, 50 years ago, God's people in churches like ours would be regularly exposed to what God has to say about the future. But today there's very little interest. And that's of concern because you really can't read your Bible without reading what God tells his people about the things to come. Today it's often thought of as divisive or not really all that important. But some have argued that nearly a third of your Bible, a third of it, has to do with the future, with what God intends to do with this world, with his people, and the coming of Christ. And so this is very important. And because of the neglect of prophecy in our day, because so many believers don't really have any idea what Jesus is talking about, I do intend to take our time in the coming weeks and to examine together what Christ is saying from the scriptures. But this morning I want to begin this study with helping you just orient you to the study of prophecy. And I hope to equip you with some tools, with some, some ideas, with some principles. And they're not, you're not gonna be surprised by them. I, I am offering no secrets to unlocking prophecy. Um, I have no seven steps. I do have seven points, but I don't have any seven secrets to opening prophecy. And I pray that even as we go along, if you're here and you happen to disagree with what my understanding, what our church's teaching is on the end times, I trust that you can still, with us, worship God, worship Christ, and that we together can benefit. First of all, I want to, so I want to give you seven principles this morning, guiding principles in studying prophecy in general, but especially chapters 24 and 25. And I want to 
use these in the weeks to come. First of all, go back to the old to understand the new. Go back to the old to understand the new. What I mean by that is go back to the Old Testament to understand the new. And what does that have to do with our text this morning? Well, Jesus, in chapter 23, verse 39, the last verse of chapter 23, has just pronounced judgment upon Jerusalem. And he has said in verse 39, I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, verse 26. He has no view of the Old Testament that somehow it's impossible to understand or just um, uh, metaphorical, allegorical. His understanding is literally one day Jerusalem will see him again when the people are brought to the point of repentance and cry out in sincerity the messianic Greeting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When the disciples in verse 3 ask Jesus when these things will happen, they're referring not only to the destruction of the temple that Jesus told them about in verses 1 and 2, and that will take place about 44 years later from this point in 70 AD when the Romans will utterly obliterate the temple. But they're referring not only to the destruction of the temple, but, but the seeing of Christ, the return of Christ. We tend to think the disciples are dullards. They're dense. They don't get it. We think, we're tempted to think, if I saw Jesus raise someone from the dead, I'd get it. Um, but we overestimate uh, ourselves and our ability And sometimes we're actually a little too hard on these disciples. These are Jewish men, grew up in the synagogue. They knew the Old Testament scriptures likely better than any one of us in this room, including me. They were brought up on the scriptures. They knew the law and the prophets. They heard the prophets read in the synagogue. They loved the messianic prophecies. These men were already longing for the coming of the kingdom, for when Jesus came along to call them to be his disciples, they left everything and followed Jesus, not because of the sure, rather the sheer wonder of, and power of, of Jesus' person, but they saw, they had in them that expectation all the way since they were Jewish boys of the coming of the Messiah and the fulfilling of all the promises of God towards Israel. They believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah and they took Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Joel and Hosea. They, they, they read those prophecies And they captured their hearts. They didn't understand it perfectly. They obviously didn't understand that Jesus would come the first time to deal with sins, ascend into heaven, and then there would be a period of time until he would return again. But they longed for the coming of the kingdom, for the fulfillment of all God's promises. And so they're asking asking Jesus, when will these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? But when will, when will we see you come? When, when will the prophecy in Psalm 118, verse 26, for example, be fulfilled? When will these things be and the end of the age? The Old Testament didn't have a little bit to say about the end of the age. Let me give you two more examples. We're going to be turning in our Bibles if you would like to. You don't have to. You can listen. But if you'd like to turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Verse 24. There God sent to Daniel an angel 
Gabriel. And he said in verse 24, 70 sevens or 70 weeks, but literally it reads in Hebrew, 70 sevens have been decreed for your people. Who's are, who are Daniel's people? The Israelites. The people of Israel and Judah. Seventy sevens have been decreed for your people and your holy city. What's the holy city? Jerusalem. Don't, I'm getting ahead to my point, but don't make confusing what is plain. Daniel's people are the Jews. The holy city is Jerusalem. To finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the holy place. Now, there's obviously a lot of debate about the 77s, but they are sevens of years. How do we know that? Because God was specific in saying, for example, that Judah would be in exile in Babylon for 70 years because they denied, rather, in all their history, they had neglected the Sabbath, the the, the seventh year, the sabbatical year. It's a 77s. And there we get into, uh, and I don't want to lose us in numbers here this morning, but you see in chapter uh, 9, verse 26, there are 62 sevens. The Messiah will be cut off. Jesus died on the cross. And there is, up in verse 25, rather, from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven sevens of years and 62 sevens of years. So 62 plus seven is what? <laughs> yeah, wait, I didn't come to math class this morning. 69. I'm not trying to be silly here this morning. This is inspired and errant infallible scripture. 62 plus seven is 69. But God had said in verse 24, 70 weeks. So there's one week left. All this hasn't come to place. We know that from the decree to return and rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of Messiah, and the, was this 60, and the cutting off of the Messiah was this period of time, these 69 sevens of years. But there's one seven-year period waiting. And and we're here this morning. My point is not to delve into Daniel 9 and to answer all the questions. My point is God had revealed by his spirit to Daniel, his servant, and to his people that there is a certain timeline unfolding, and it is a plan, and it is concrete, and it is within a frame of a specific period of time. Make what you may of the 70 weeks or the 62 and the 7 weeks, but God is communicating a specific unit of time. He's not saying it'll work out. It's a timeline. Or another important, I just want to go to one more passage, and this is so pivotal. And Zechariah chapter 14, really Zechariah is like Revelation in the Old Testament. Revelation in the New Testament has to do overwhelmingly with the end times. Zechariah has overwhelmingly to do with the end times. And here, all the way before even the coming, first coming of Christ, God says in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1 and following, Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil will be taken from you will be divided among you. He's speaking to Jerusalem. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Here's the verse I especially want to draw your attention to. In that day, verse 4, his feet, the Lord's feet, Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, has feet. 
He's spirit. So here you have, a, even here, another indication of the triune God and the incarnation of the Son of God. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half the mountain will move towards the north, half other half towards the south, and you, speaking of that remnant that will be left in Jerusalem after this onslaught, they will flee, you will flee by my valley, by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. That is when Jesus will come and set his feet on this planet again. And all his angels and we who are his people who die before this and are with him and in heaven will be there. This isn't, this isn't confusing. God, the Son, is going to come and his feet that were pierced and bear the scars are going to set foot on the mountain that in Matthew 24, at the moment of Matthew 24, he's sitting on teaching his disciples. Think about that for a moment. The Lord has been rejected by Israel. He's been rejected by Jerusalem, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. His heart is broken. He's pronounced woe and judgment He's lamented, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, they will not see him until there is that moment of repentance. When they look on him whom they have pierced, when there's a moment of repentance and revival among that remnant that's left, So in Matthew 24, Jesus is sitting on the very mountain that he knows very well one day he's going to return to to save that city that he's looking at. He's on the Mount of Olives. He's looking across the ravine. He's looking at the city, the Temple Mount. The temple was built by Herod the Great. It took some hundred years to build, basically. Incredible piece of, of, of art. It would be gleaming white in the late of the day as the sun was shining upon it, just glowing. And he's sitting there on the Mount of Olives teaching his disciples about what will come to pass in the future. And his heart must be broken, but also filled with anticipation. He knows he's going to enter the city to be betrayed, to be judged, and then he's going to be crucified outside the city but he also knows that one day his feet are going to set down on that mountain, on the Mount of Olives, and he's going to come and rescue his people. We need to go back to the old to understand the new. So much of the reason why we struggle with prophecy in the New Testament is because, frankly, we neglect the prophets in the Old Testament, and we do. Let's just admit it. When's the last time you heard a series of sermons on Joel or Obadiah, right? We've relegated that portion of God's word almost to a second-class place. And what I'm saying to all of us, we need in humility to recognize what we don't know and do a little work and go back and orient ourselves. There's a few basic plays, if you will. I put it that way. It's football season. Um, I don't understand how those quarterbacks and those teams, I mean, the quarterback, actually, he has that cheat sheet on his arm. I mean, to him, that's, that's got to be easy. But it's the guys who don't have the cheat sheet. He calls out a play. How do they remember it? I have no idea. Maybe some, I, I, how do they, how they remember all these plays? But in the Old Testament, uh, I, there's a few basic plays. I won't all of them, but you, you'll learn in, for example, Joel of the coming day of the Lord, day of Yahweh. That is a day of judgment upon earth, but in particular, a day of unprecedented judgment upon Israel, a purging of Israel. You learn in the Old Testament in Isaiah, for example, especially Isaiah, that God will deal with Israel and judge Israel and Judah. But in the last days, there will be a left remnant 
the principle of a remnant. You learn in the Old Testament, certainly, of, of, um, that there is, in Daniel 9, a period of time that is awaiting yet, that must be fulfilled. It's called in Jeremiah, the day of Jacob's distress or Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 30, verse 7. You learn in the Old Testament that God is dealing with Israel, but that in his dealing with Israel and Israel's judgment, God is by and through Israel and through the Messiah of Israel reaching men and women from all tribes, all nations. And he will redeem in the last days a remnant of people from nations like Egypt and Assyria and actually call them my people. So when we come to Acts and the gospel is going to Gentiles, this isn't new. This is, this is Old Testament being fulfilled. We must, number one, go back to the old to understand the new. So really, if you want to understand Matthew chapter 24 and the Olivet Discourse, we're going to spend most of our time in our personal study, not in Matthew 24, but in reading the prophets, because that's what Jesus is largely drawing upon. He is revealing some things that are new, but he's not changing anything that's already been given. Secondly, this morning, do not allegorize or make mysterious what is plain. Do not allegorize, when it comes to studying prophecy, or Matthew chapter 24, don't allegorize it, don't spiritualize it, don't make mysterious what is plain. For example, Jesus says um, that nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, verse 7 of chapter 24. What do I think is going to happen? I think nation's going to rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Um, what about verse 24? Uh, false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead. I think there are going to be Christ and false prophets that arise empowered by Satan who are able to display power, maybe like the magicians in, in Egypt of old. Remember, they apparently had some power. They could do some pretty impressive signs. They could change their rods into snakes too. Moses' rod that changed into a snake ate their snakes, but they could still do some pretty impressive things. I think that's going to happen. What about the coming of Jesus? Verse 27. Just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. (laughs) I don't think the coming of Christ the second time when he actually sets foot on this earth is going to be some kind of spiritual coming. There's a form of, of, of Christian eschatology called preterism. And there's a significant group of people who think that everything Jesus is saying took place in and around 70 AD and it's all fulfilled. All of this. Signs and wonders and and we don't know it, but Jesus came spiritually, and so now we're in that period of time. Wow, um, that's depressing. I mean, really depressing. I mean, if this is the time when Satan is bound, and, and this is what the scriptures meant by the coming of Christ, I'm done. This is, but that's not what Jesus said. So just take it straightforwardly. I recognize that there are some things that are difficult to understand. We scratch our heads. We, we wonder what it is maybe what Jesus is saying. We have questions, understandably so. But just because we have questions doesn't mean that we should spiritualize or allegorize Make into make mysterious what is plain. Just take it straightforwardly until you learn otherwise. There are times when in eschatology or end times prophecy language, there are images, there are metaphors. But we don't need to confuse it. And I want you to notice on this point, Jesus' disciples come to him privately in Matthew 24. In verse 3, 
And they say, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Notice what Jesus does not do. He doesn't rebuke them. Why are you guys worried about that? Why? You guys just really aren't cross-centered. I can see some Christians today saying that. No, he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't, he doesn't give any indication that he's disappointed with their question. Just the opposite. His heart is heavy. His people have rejected him. He knows he's going to die. His disciples are asking him when these things will be. And it's as though in chapter 24 and 25, he's grateful they're asking. And he takes time. He gives a lengthy answer to their question. Apparently their question is humble and earnest. And he replies with a lengthy, thoughtful answer. He does not say to his disciples, I don't know, but it's really not important. It'll all work out in the end. It's not what he says. A large portion of the Gospel of Matthew is about this question that the disciples ask. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus provides a thoughtful, deadly serious, loving, longing answer to his disciples. And not just for his disciples that were there with him there at that moment, but for his disciples to come, and especially, I believe, for those disciples that will live in the last days through these events, which leads to point three. Prophecies often address a future generation. This is a, while initially given given to an initial audience. Prophecies often address a future generation while given to an initial audience. Um, Daniel, we just read. Daniel didn't even live to see the birth of Christ. And yet God is sending him an angel to tell him about things that will happen in the last days. For me, Isaiah, church body, you'll understand, you'll know. Isaiah chapter 40 to 66, the entire section of Isaiah, second section, takes place after Hezekiah has the Babylonian um, ambassadors go through all of his wealth, and God rebukes Hezekiah, tells him that the Babylonians are going to come and haul it all off. The entire rest of the book of Isaiah is primarily a message of hope and comfort. Comfort, comfort ye my people. Given not firstly necessarily to Isaiah's generation, but for a generation to come in the last days. It is for Isaiah's generation. It is for that initial audience. But God in his mercy and kindness in his word is is giving prophecies that are a special provision for his people in the future undergoing this time of judgment. While at the same time, of course, his word is instructive for all his people the whole way along. And so Jesus here is speaking initially, he's looking at his disciples, but it becomes clear that the you he's talking about is not realized fully in the apostles. They will be persecuted. They will suffer. But they, they're not there, verse 17. Whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are out of his house. Whoever's in the field, woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing in those days. Pray that your flight... They're not there when, verse 29, the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. They're not there for the sign of the son of man when it appears in the sky. 
So who's Jesus addressing? He's addressing his disciples. He's addressing us. But could it be that he is particularly addressing a remnant of godly men and women in the last days who will be living through these things? Prophecies often address a future generation of believers while initially given to the immediate audience. Number four, prophecy, and Jesus is prophesying here. Remember, Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. He's a prophet. He's a preacher. He came preaching, and he preaches the law. He preaches how to live a godly life, but he is here fulfilling his prophetic function, just like the prophets of old, and he is giving his disciples, his people, revelation to prepare us for the things to come. And prophecy, here's number four, prophecy is for godly, Christ-exalting, hope-filled living in every place and time. That's the purpose of prophecy. I know I put a lot in there. Prophecy is for godly, Christ-exalting, hope-filled living in every place and time. That's what our study of chapter 24 and 25 is going to be for. It's, It's not just so that we have a better understanding and we can scratch some Curious, curious itches in our eschatology or wondering about the end times. These things are written so that we might know God, love God, revel in the glory of Christ, that we might be filled in dark and perverse and crooked days with hope. Because we know the end of the story. We, need th- we know things are unfolding right on time according to God's plan. I want to go to a few passages that underscore this. And pastorally, maybe this is the most important of the points this morning. And I do think that this may have been lost in a previous generation 50 years ago, 40 years ago. I fear that the impression, at least, was that the church had a fascination with prophecy, loved to hear prophecy speakers come through and and talk about this detail or that detail. They came and they went and they came and they went, but there are people, husbands or wives asking, well, my husband's really fascinated in prophecy, but he sure doesn't act like Christ is coming when he's at home. Kids who are thinking, oh, my mom and my dad, yeah, they got all these books on prophecy, but they are, they are, they are pain. They're mean. Where's the grace of Christ in that? So I fear that they're, There is some truth to the fact that in previous generations, there may have been a fascination with prophecy and yet a complete or large-scale missing of what the point is. It is, yes, so that we might know what is coming, but I'm not going to be in the tribulation. Some of you might be. You think according to your plan? Um, my dad, I actually went to a seminary which did not teach what, what, what I now believe and what our church teaches. And, and I was kind of reacting against what I'd been brought up on. And I came back and one day and said to my parents, I was in seminary, we, Thanksgiving or something. And I said, I, I don't think I'm, the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation, which is what I do believe now. And, uh, I, I, you know, my, my dad, tongue in cheek, said to me, well, that's fine. You, you can be here, but I'm going to be long gone. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to be raptured. So I say that meaning that part of my reasoning was, you know, I thought, well, Christians live through trial and tribulation now. Yes, they do. But there are times of unprecedented tribulation coming. And the point of knowing these things, for example, Second Peter, let's look at two passages together. Second Peter chapter 3. I actually referenced this passage in closing last Sunday. As part of our benediction. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Here, Peter references the day of the Lord. That's a key phrase. 
Peter references it. Paul references it. It is a dominant theme in the Old Testament prophets, the coming judgment, the day of the Lord. It's not a good day. It's a bad day. When God's judgment is going to be unleashed upon this planet in rebellion against him, Israel in particular is going to be judged. But it will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. Elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, here's what I wanted to point out to you. Verse 11. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So the study of prophecy ought to lead to holy conduct and godliness. It humbles us. It, it puts within us a, wow, I, I, better, I better tend to my life, to my life and my doctrine. I better watch it closely, as Paul says to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Because these are serious things. This is the God I'm dealing with. This is the Christ I'm dealing with. I need to conduct myself in a holy and godly manner. And does the study of prophecy and the last days lead us to be depressed? Oh, it's terrible. It's all going down. It's all going to burn. No. Verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Looking for it. Looking for it. Not depressed. Hope-filled. Prophecy is for godly, Christ-exalting, hope-filled living. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. One more reference on this point. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 6. Well, can we start in verse 1? That always happens. I, I have a reference in mind, and then I actually get to the reference, and my eyes look up, and I think, ooh, that's good. Um, verse 1, Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, Paul says, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Now just pause there. Apparently part of Paul's basic pastoral apostolic ministry was to teach the people that he discipled about the epochs and the times. In our generation, we relegate end times eschatology to a bonus study. You know, okay, if you get around to it. For Paul and his ministry, it was foundational. He did not leave a church without instructing them in the basics about times and epochs. And notice in verse 2, just like Peter, he references the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. But I wanted to point out, especially verse 6 and following, Because of this, they know end times, they know the day of the Lord, the day of judgment is coming, it's going to come suddenly. But because of that, as sons of the light, we do not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Verse 8, since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Hope! For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. That's good news. We don't have to be afraid. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. The purpose of prophecy, prophecy is for godly, Christ-exalting, hope-filled living in every place, doesn't matter where you live, whether you live in Israel, Iran, or Chichester, New Hampshire. Prophecy has the same purpose in every place, every time. It's for godly, Christ-exalting, hope-filled living. Fifth, I just alluded to the fact that we don't need to fear. But I want to acknowledge that there is a fear in the study of prophecy. My fifth point is, let fear drive you to Christ and God, and then don't fear. Let fear, in the study of prophecy, drive you to Christ, your Savior, to God the Father, and then in his presence, don't fear. Fear him. But, but chapters 24 and 25 is scary stuff. If you're apart from Christ, you should be scared. 
The judgment is serious. The things that Christ talks about are serious. The days we're living in are serious. We've been promised for generations now, especially here in America. Oh, yes, we're going to figure out everything through technology and medicine, through our political achievements, through uh, we're, we're every. And because we know now, uh, because of the professors in our colleges, that human nature is innately good. I, I am being facetious, but that's what that's what we know. We've been told. I mean, those, those Puritans and those old people who thought that we were sinners and that there was a God. I mean, how Neanderthal-like. Mankind is essentially good. The problem's just economics and that kind of thing. Well, we've been through two world wars, and now we have our president, who maybe is not being all that uh, discreet, but alluding to the possibility of a third world war, right? And we understand that it wouldn't take much. Uh, you know, everybody's talking about, will Putin launch the missile or won't he? And the bottom line is, we all don't know. But the reality is, he's an evil man, and could he? Sure. That's the world we live in. That's the world I live in. That's the world you live in. It's frightening. Wars. Rumors of wars. This is where we live. This is what we live in. We know of earthquakes. We've experienced tsunamis. Not personally, thankfully, but we've seen now with video what a tsunami is like. Remember the one in Japan just a few years ago? Took out that nuclear reactor. This is frightening material. And Jesus says that some of those things, the wars and rumors of wars, verse 24, I mean chapter 24, um, he says in verse 8, these are just the beginning of birth pangs. All that bad stuff, False Christs, Antichrists, false teaching, wars, rumors of wars, verse 6, nation rising against nation, famines, earthquakes. Just for a heads up, Jesus says, I want you to know, that's not the end. That's just the beginning of the end. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Do you have any good news, Jesus? Well, yes, he does. But it is frightening, and especially I want to say to, a, to, to younger folks, you may be here this morning, maybe you're a teen, maybe you're, you're a kid, and this is scary. And especially, I think, if you're a you know, young adult, you know, a teen, you know, there can be a, a thought, too, like, you know, I just, I just would like to have, I'd like to have a chance to have a good life. And Jesus is telling me that there's wars and rumors and famines and earthquakes, and that's discouraging. Well, this is the reality we're all born into, the world and rebellion against God. And it is a scary world. And the judgments to come are terrifying. And in that regard, we should be afraid But that fear, don't think about it without going to Christ. That God has offered to you Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, risen, reigning right now, interceding for us, indwelling us by his own spirit, saying he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If Jesus is our Lord and Savior and we are in him and he is in us, We do not need to be afraid. We do not need to be afraid. God is our fear. God is our dread. You can burn up this world. We are one with the one who spoke it all into being and will make it all new. And I want to say again to the young people with Jesus, and I, I mean this, I don't mean this is just a spiritual, you know, phrase. But with Jesus, you lose nothing. You lose nothing. There is nothing that we who are in Christ seemingly lose. And, and the losses we can suffer in this earth are, are not nothing. 
God's people, Christ's people can suffer great loss. But Jesus promises, he's already promised disciples to bless them and provide many times over. He will make a new heavens and a new earth. You will see things with your resurrected eyes, hear things with your resurrected ears that will fill you with such joy that we can't even fathom it right now. That will make whatever joy or gladness or event thing we want to do in this life look like dirt in comparison. We lose nothing with Jesus. So let fear in the study of prophecy, if you begin to be a little frightened by what's going to happen, if you become frightened by this culture and the persecution that's coming, let that fear drive you to Christ and to God your Father, and then don't fear. Sixth, prophecy assures us that history is unfolding according to God's awesome purposes and plan. Prophecy assures us that history is unfolding according to God's awesome purpose and plan. That's another purpose of prophecy. And Jesus wants his disciples to be comforted. He wants them to be informed. He wants them to not lose hope. He wants their faith to be um, bolstered in that when difficult times come they won't be put off guard by that they'll understand this is exactly what our Lord said would happen this is what he said would come and if the bad things are he said would come that means on the other side the good things are coming prophecy assures us history is unfolding according to God's awesome purpose and plan so this is why yes I know particularly in this room there's a tendency for us to get discouraged and depressed about what's going on in our nation. And I understand, and I'm concerned with you, and I am saddened, and we should be, because we we should love our nation. We should be thankful to God. But we must remember that, while this isn't according to our plan, this is just part of the unfolding of God's plan and purpose. So we should not be overly discouraged. We should not be shocked. We should not be taken off guard. This is the plan. Seventh and finally, maybe I've already alluded to this, but I want to make clear as we study prophecy and as we study Matthew 24 and 25, keep your mind and heart fixed on Jesus. So yes, study the details. And we are going to study the details. We are, really. We're going to get there. We're going to study this portion, this Olivet Discourse. We're going to consider what the Lord says. We're going to examine the scriptures. We're going to ask questions. But in all of our study about future things, what God has done and what God will do, in it all, we want to keep our heart and mind fixed on Jesus. We want to be like the disciples sitting with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, And their eyes are fixed on him as he's speaking. And I want to leave you with this this morning, if I can. I've already alluded to this, but I want to set the scene again for you in anticipation of our study next Lord's Day morning. We're going to join Jesus on that day that his heart was broken as he was, the, he's the king of Jerusalem, he's the king of Israel, he is there, he is, he is the Messiah, he is the son of David, he's pronounced judgment upon the scribes and Pharisees, pronounced the woes, he's lamented over Jerusalem, his heart is shattered. Have you thought about that, about Jesus, at this section of his ministry? I know I'm just reflecting myself. I, I tend to just read through and say, okay, you know, he's in the temple, he was teaching, and then, and then you know, we find him over the Mount of Olives. He is an incarnate, he is the incarnate Son of God. He's a man. And his holy soul and spirit and heart is broken over the rejection of his people. He, he knew that would happen. He wasn't caught off guard by it. He knew that was the Father's plan. He knew that he would be rejected. After all, he keeps saying to his disciples, the Son of Man must be rejected by the chief, chief uh, priests and scribes. 
betrayed and crucified. He knows exactly what's going to happen, but that doesn't mean that his heart isn't shattered since he was a little boy. And of course, before that, as this son of God, he's read the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, the son of David. He can't wait for the fulfillment of those things. He can't wait for the day when he's going to conquer the enemies of his people. He says, I long Jerusalem and Jerusalem. How often, verse chapter 23, verse 7, 37, I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks. His heart is broken over what they are going to go through. He knows what's coming upon them and it's judgment. Awful, holy, just judgment. That city across the valley from where Jesus is sitting, that white stone of the temple complex glowing in the glory of late day sun, that beautiful massive complex will be reduced to blood-soaked dust and rubble when the Romans in 70 AD, only 44 years later, will conquer it. And beyond that, he knows that's not the last judgment. He knows what the people of Israel are going to go through. He knows that they're going to persist in their hard heart. He knows that partial hardening that's going to come upon them. He knows what it's going to take, this judgment upon the world, judgment upon Israel. He knows that the time of Jacob's distress is coming. He knows that they are going to be surrounded. He knows that they are going to be slaughtered. He knows that the Holocaust is going to take place that we know of as history now. But that Holocaust that happened under Hitler and under Stalin is small compared to what is going to happen in the last days, according to the scriptures. And Jesus' heart, as he's teaching his disciples, is full of all this. And in love and sympathy and compassion and concern and care, he takes time when he's only going to be crucified in virtually a matter of hours, essentially. He takes time to share with them and to share with us and to share with those who will live in that last day. Here's what's going to happen. You don't need to be afraid. Verse 6, we'll end with this. See that you are not frightened. See that you are not frightened. I love that Jesus. I love that Jesus whose heart is so Broken, grieving, exhausted, and yet is so loving, so regal, so dignified, so kingly, that his first concern is to prepare his beloved sheep for what is coming so that they're not frightened. That's our Jesus. Let's keep our eyes on him as we study prophecy. And if we differ on some points, can we agree in the end? (laughs) He's a good king. And uh, his coming is going to be glorious. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us your son. And we want you to know, Father, what we think of your son He is the one that captivates our hearts. We love him because of your love for us and your love within us. We love him in all his kingly, regal glory. We love him as our prophet, the one who reveals to us your will and your plan. We love him as our priest, the one who offered up himself as the atonement for our sins and even now intercedes for us. And oh, we love him as our king, presently ruling in his church, but coming physically, to reign physically 
and completely and utterly upon this earth. So that the day will be fulfilled in Zechariah, the saying will be fulfilled, the king will be Lord all. The Lord will be king over all the earth. May it come quickly, we pray. And may we, in the meantime, as we study these things, may we, as Peter, your servant, admonished us, may we be godly people who live holy lives, full of hope. May we be your representatives. May we be fearless to represent and preach Christ in this, these dark days. We pray that you, the study of the Olivet Discourse will have this purifying, sanctifying work in your church here and among us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.